live this Friday night at the Richmond Theater, Ellen Aim and the Attackers, with special opening guest, Shirelles. Tickets available now on C here. <laughs> folks out there in the crowd. Yes, I see we have an excited crowd out there because we're going to be tackling one of those films that's legendary in GGTMC circles. We're talking about Walter Hill's film, Streets of Fire. And to join me, I have three people who know what tonight is what it means to be young. Yes, I have starting on the left of my screen, I have from Seoul in South Korea, Mr. Tim McCoy Merrill. That's right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight is what it means to be Carl Young. <laughs> Not Neil Young. <laughs> In the middle of my screen, I have Mr. Bernie Fish Stickwell. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And we are joined by someone very, very, very special. You've been seeing her name in the GGTMC forums, in the See Here forums, but tonight she makes her podcasting debut. It's Lily, Ellen Aim, Sock Monkey. Welcome, Lily. <laughs> wow, that's a build-up, but it's uh, so much better going nowhere fast. Indeed. <laughs> so, as I said, we're going to be discussing tonight, Streets of Fire, said he in his best 1980s film trailer voice. So what we'll do is we're going to go and play you the trailer for this film, and then we're going to be back to discuss a little bit of Walter Hill action. You're listening to See Here, Episode 46. I'll be coming for her, and I'll be coming for you too. Sure you will, and I'll be waiting. You are about to enter a world unlike any you've ever seen before, where rock and roll is king. The only law is a loaded gun. Where the beautiful... Stay and see the show, it's really good. The brutal... I want Tom Cody. ...and the brave all meet. From now on, it's for real. In Streets of Fire. You're lying in your bed and on a Saturday night You're sweating buckets and it's not even hard But your brain has got the message and it's sending it out To every nerve and every muscle you got You've got so many dreams that you don't know Your body's got a feeling that it's starting to rust. You better rev it up and put it to use. And I don't know how I ever thought that I could take it all alone. When you're 
from the creators of 48 Hours, Universal Pictures presents Michael Paré, Diane Lane, Rick Moranis, and Amy Madigan in a Walter Hill film, Streets of Fire. Welcome back from break. Morris over here, Bernie over there, Tim somewhere else over there, and Lily, who's not quite over there to Bernie, but she's sort of in the next room, I think. All four of us. <laughs> yeah. We are the See Here crew. Thank you very, very much for joining us. The film actually tonight, Streets of Fire, was your request, Lily. So I'll be asking you in a minute why you chose this, but let's give some details. The film is Streets of Fire. It was directed by one Walter Hill. It was written by Walter Hill and Larry Gross. The year of release was 1984, starring, what a cast! I won't say what type of cast, but it is a cast. Michael Paré, Diane Lane. Rick Moranis, Amy Madigan, Willem Dafoe. I'm not sure you might be able to sort of clear this up whether this was his first screen appearance. And Deborah von Valkenberg. The uh, synopsis of the film, according to IMDb, a mercenary is hired to rescue his ex-girlfriend, a singer who has been kidnapped by a motorcycle gang. Well, it's not too far from the truth. Lily, this was your pick as a request for the program. I want to know, what is your history with this film and why did you pick it? Oh, wow. I picked it because who wouldn't pick it? It's like awesome. <laughs> and anyone that disagrees with me is like no longer going to be on the See Here cast because you're going to be out of here. I'm going to make Bernie throw you out. <laughs> what? But, <laughs> this is the first time I'm hearing this. <laughs> it's just, it's like, I, it, it's a See Here film. It's one that has to be discussed. It's got everything. It's got rock and roll. It's got 80s. It's got glamour. It's got motorcycles. It's got stunts. We have to cover this. So what was the first time that you recall seeing it? Oh, gosh. Like, probably when it first came out, to be honest. Wow. Okay. Um, I would have thought, yeah. I'm sure I saw it, like, fairly early on and probably thought, yay, that's brilliant, and didn't necessarily see any of its flaws, and I still don't. So, flaws? <laughs> so was this a film that had, like, late-night screenings? I know here in Melbourne, at you know, great cinemas like the Valhalla and the Astor and Westgarth, they showed films like the Blues Brothers and uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show and a bunch of other non-musical films at midnight as cult films. Uh, was this ever shown as a cult film in Bath? Uh-huh, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, not um... a Barthanian, so... I'll step in here. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. I think really here in the UK, it's probably only been the last 10 years or so where it's gradually become a a bit more of a cult movie. Prior to that, it would have just been uh, VHS. To be honest, I I don't even recall it being on at the cinema. Um, It must have got some kind of release over here. I'm wondering whether it was a straight to VHS because I think it was like, a you know, me and my girly chums, like with our sticky VHS from some dodgy shop that was letting us rent things <laughs> and we just get get all sorts of stuff that we had no clue what it was and then sort of squirrel it away and hide in a big house one of my friends had a massive house and her parents were always out so that's where we went and watched whatever we could get our hands on Tim, do you recall seeing this in Toronto when it first came out, or was it a lot? Um, I knew when this came out. I remember this coming out in the theater, actually, because like my hometown, 
you know, it's a small town, but at the time, 75,000 people, not a lot. There wasn't a lot to do except go to the show. So everyone used to congregate. They'd wind up going to the theater to see horror films or whatever was showing. You know, and they, there was stuff like trying to think of Baskey's Hey Good Looking, American Pop, all kinds of other things that were kind of culty at that time. I had seen this first actually on cable TV. Again, about years after it, it got its theatrical release. But I remember this specifically seeing the trailer in the theater for this. I forget what I what else I had been watching, but uh, I remember seeing the trailer for this. Okay. I mean, this is a film that I'd always seen as like a poster or as a VHS case in the video shop back in the day. But for some reason, I never latched onto my radar. To be absolutely honest with you, I guess I'm not sure that I was seeing much in the way of action films in the 80s. It's sort of only been you know, maybe in more recent years becoming the GGTMC devotee that have sort of gone back to a whole lot of that sort of stuff from that period. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I got to say you know, thank you to Lily for making this suggestion because I'm not really sure when I would have gotten round to it. And I'm sure that's going to get my GGTMC card or my CD <laughs> card revoked. But, so, how could you have walked past that box? Uh, I was probably watching something arty farty, like a like Bertrand, <laughs> Bertrand Tavernier's Round Midnight. You know, <laughs> similar but not quite the same. Uh, it has its many, place. Not as many motorcycle <laughs> explosions in that one, I think. You like. know what's funny about that? The the, the the cover of the box is that when you really look at it, the poster it almost looks like a western. Absolutely. We'll get to this later, but I, I think there's certain elements in the film. I mean, what's, uh, what the film does is draw different things from different genres, I think. Oh, and yeah. there's certainly a few uh, Western elements in the film. So, Big time. Yeah. Yeah, high noon. Oh, yeah, but I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying that it doesn't really stand out looking like an action film. When you see this, yeah. like something like The Shootist or something like that, like I say, like a Western-style poster. I wonder if this was part of the problem with because the, the film didn't do well when it was released. It was, I think, it was right. considered a pretty big flop. And maybe that was part of the problem. People just couldn't quite get their head around what it was. Sure. The poster on its own, and it's kind of given you kind of weird mixed messages as to what it might be. I just want to read a little bit of feedback that we got asked for people to send us an email. People don't like writing emails apparently anymore, but they did leave us a little bit of feedback on the Facebook page. Robert Hubbard, who uh, we've had once on the See Here program. How you doing, Rob? Hope you're, you're well. But Rob went and said, Rachel Sweet's version of Shadows of the Night accomplishes in four minutes what Streets of Fire couldn't completely pull off in an hour and a half, but not for lack of trying. And he's put a link to uh, <laughs> Rachel Sweet's version of Shadows of the Night. And apparently her version wasn't even the first one. Her version came before Pat Benatar's, but there was another version before that. I can't remember who he pointed me at in the link to in a, a private message that we had. I've had a listen to the Rachel Sweet version, and it does sound very much in that Jim Steinman vein, just like Pat Benatar's version did. Scott right. Smart made the following comments. He said, The Blasters. So little sense, so much fun, grab some alcohol. Eddie and the Cruisers next, Leaving from Fear. A Sledgehammer Fight. Costumes by Giorgio Armani. Cameos. Peyton. Washington. Begley Jr. Chucky from Rugrats. I hope you've seen the reunion, Docker, which features one of my favorite quotes from the filmmaker ever. Walter Hill. You know it's not a very good movie. Cowboy Bebop. <laughs> well, that's it. End of episode, folks. Scott's gone and gotten right to that the That was heart pretty much it. all the references, wasn't uh-huh. it? Yeah. We will come back to that Walter Hill assessment of the film a little bit later mm. on, no doubt. The story is about a black sheep of a family who comes home on the request of his sister to help an old flame rescue her from the clutches of an evil motorcycle gang who's running roughshod over an unknown metropolitan city. And basically, that's just the gist of it. 
soldier of fortune comes home, tries to make good, and tries to rekindle the flame. But does he? (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a really out-of-context sort of question, but I was sort of thinking about this, and I probably wanted to bring this up maybe later in the conversation, but I think probably um, I might as well do it now. I mean, this is going to be spoiler-heavy, folks, so forgive me. I'm going to go right to the end of the film here. We have the character who comes home to try and... As Tim says, you know, he he thinks he's going to rescue his old flame. But as he says, I was never going to be your roadie. I was never going to carry your guitar for you. So what does he do? Rather than walking off with his beautiful old flame, he walks off with the soldier of fortune. He basically to go into the good night to have more adventures, kick some more ass. He goes off with Amy Madigan rather than going off with Diane Lane. Clear, he is who he yep. is, isn't he? He can't, yep. uh, he, and he can't change that. He comes back. Frankly, Alan, to... I don't give a damn. Well, and the thing is, is that he didn't know what he was coming home for. You know, Reva, the sister, sends him the sort of cryptic telegraph is it, I, I presume it is the police yeah. come home I need you I mean it, yeah. that reads more like a lover than a sister hey yeah. steady <laughs> this, is, this is a family podcast Lily yeah this isn't silver <laughs> gold <laughs> well but you know to me I'm reading that and you know it's it's unclear at that point what their relationship right. is right and then uh, especially since you know when he, he he goes into the cafe and he's just sitting there drinking his coffee and she looks at him like oh and he looks at her like hey yeah <laughs> yeah that's the chemistry there that's the money shot where do you go teaching Lily words like money shot then <laughs> I, I don't even know what that means westerns though like like Bernie was saying you know, like, there's so many tropes of westerns that follow this where like so many John Ford type of westerns where the guy comes in does his thing and then you know reconnects with his old flame and then splits this is it as the film opens it says uh, a rock and roll fable and that's kind of exactly what it is because everybody plays out their kind of role exactly as you would imagine that role to play out yeah there's no real surprises he's got you know kind of like the stoic hero the kind of the damsel in distress the kind of plucky heroine who helps him out kind of mean baddies it's all total fairy tale stuff they play it all out with a straight face it's a rock and roll fable in the sense that it covers rock and roll lyrical themes but it's not Absolutely. really but it's not a musical film I mean apart from okay you, you have three bands in this Ellen Aim and the Attackers the Blasters whatever their fictitious band name is and the Sorrells and yet it's never really about the music so it's not a rock and roll fable but it's more the rock and roll lifestyle fable if you will yeah like, like you say Morris it's a rock and roll fable in that it's kind of creating its story and its fairy tale out of all those rock and roll tropes. Like you say, it's not a musical, but it's taking all that stuff seriously and molding that into its story. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of? And I was saying this to Morris, I think, last night. This reminds me almost like West Side Story. I could have seen this done as a stage production, the whole film. Mm, and yeah. you can just see it in my mind, you know, everybody snapping their fingers and coming up behind Tom Cody, you know, <laughs> and like, it just got that whole thing about it. And again, West Side Story is not a film about music, but the music is part of the film. And it was funny because Walter Hill said, I read somewhere where he said that when he put this together, like the idea he wanted to basically amalgamate all the things that he saw as a youth in the theater when he went to the movies. Gangs, the leather jackets, the girls that um, need to be rescued and the action, the switchblades, all that stuff. And he, and he even said something about the music, too. And I thought, yeah. that's like West Side Story, totally. Well, in that bit at the end, the sort of high noon goes in, then, you know, the foghorn, 
and all the other guys and, you know that's very kind of you could just see that clicking yeah. then couldn't you you know it's like a rumble isn't it yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 exactly to the extent yeah. that they actually play rumble by link ray when all those right. uh, bikers show yeah, up yeah don't they? yeah, that's yeah. Right. So i actually yeah. had a problem with the version that they use in the film i sort of wanted to talk a bit more about the music later on but just to mention this here in an era when the jukebox soundtracks that was like all pervasive through the 80s I mean, like nowadays because of rights issues and the cost of using music in films you'd sure, never yeah. get that sort of you'd never get another cocktail or you'd never get any of the Vietnam War films that they used to have the 60s yeah, greatest yeah. hit sort of thing so in an era when that was common to use those songs uh, I mean look don't get me wrong I bow down at the Temple of Rai Kuda. I think that there's nothing he can't do musically but it really his recording of Rumble in the film sort of lacked the urgency and coming at the point in the film where it needed it with all the motorcycle gang yeah. coming into town for that final showdown it was a little bit tamed back and I, I just don't know whether that was a production thing because I'm sure that Rai Kuda, more than most would understand the urgency of the Link Ray original, but that was just something that took me out a little bit. The opening credits, I think, uh, there's the Raikuda band doing a very, very Bo Diddley sounding kind of riff. Mm-hmm which made me think why didn't they just use a Bo Diddley song same kind of thing well it could have been rights and could have been a lot of things yeah I mean, this wasn't the first film that Cooter had worked with Walter Hill on because I mean he he scored Southern Comfort as well right oh sure yeah the uh, score for Southern Comfort it sort of reminded me a bit of Mark Knopfler's style like you know what you would have heard in uh, something like Local Hero at least over the opening oh, yeah. credits very very Knopfler-esque there's a part right in the middle of the film Streets of Fire where they're running down the street with uh, the Sorrells when they're they give up the bus and they're all yeah. the lamb. Hey, what's the matter with you? Are you looking to get yourself run over? Me and my friends need a lift. So what? This ain't no muni bus. Need a lift real bad. Now look, let me make it real clear. Nobody tells me where to take my bus. You dig? Well, we're very flexible. We'll take you where you want to go anywhere you want to go. You just say the word and we're with you. And it almost sounds to me like Cooter's playing Get Rhythm. Okay. Because it's got that that like it reminds me of Get Rhythm because he did a cover of Get Rhythm. Right. Of Johnny Cash Get Rhythm, but it almost sounds like a variation of that. There's a lot of the playing in this film that totally reminds me of other things. So in some ways, it kind of takes me out of watching it because I'm like, wait a minute, that sounds like I've heard this before. I guess it being a rock and roll fable and it's, you know, that's kind of where it all comes from. It makes sense that he's referencing these kind of different tunes. The, um, the That sort of first song with Ellen coming on, got the attackers in the background. That to me was like a mashup of Meatloaf and Bonnie Tyler's I Need a Hero. Well, 
that's another thing with Bonnie Tyler. I thought that she was the one that actually sang all the songs in the film, but she didn't. It was actually two different ladies. Mm. Yeah, it was kind of a mashup of two voices, wasn't it? Well, one sang the first song and the second song, and then uh, the other woman sang Sorcerer, I think it was. The woman who sang the songs with her band was uh, a woman called Laurie Sargent, I think, and she was like normally the leader of the band that you see on stage at the in the concert scene, the beginning of the film and at the end of the film. So it's basically her doing her thing with her band, but just not who you see. Dying late miming, yeah. That's right. Yeah. right. I never ever noticed this before, but throughout the film, they played this really slow song at points. But what it actually is, is just a really, really slow version of Tonight is What It Means to Be Young. But they're actually playing it really slow. It's weird. Lily, you mentioned there was a cross between Bonnie Tyler and Meatloaf, and for very good reason, because it was Jim Steinman who wrote that out of hell and all that Meatloaf stuff, who wrote the songs for this film. And I think, was it either Nowhere Fast or Tonight is What It Means to Be Young was written like two days before the scene was supposed to be shot. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you can tell it's Jim Steinman. It's, uh, you can hear it a mile off, can you? And you know what Jim Steinman said after he read the script? What was that? He said, you know what? I think this film is shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, see, yeah, talking broadly here, that's the thing about this film. There's so much in it that if you sort of take it out of context of the film and look at it individually it doesn't work but together as a whole I don't know why I can't put my finger on why but it really does work the two main lead performances are both pretty bad I have to say I'm not a fan of Jim Steinman most of the music in this most of the songs in this I think uh, you know poor (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're kind of instantly that. forgettable. Well, they're, they're, they're kind of quite generic, you know. It's it's a Jim Steinman song, and that's kind of all you need to know. You can't really, uh, oh, I don't know, all these songs stick in your head in a way, don't they? But here's the thing: um, and I'm not making excuses for the movie, but there's a podcast that I listen to once in a while called "How Did This Get Made?" I don't know. Oh, have you sure. Guys ever listened yeah. to that? Yeah, yeah. I know, well, I've and, never listened. I know it. Yeah. They covered this, and and it seems that with the millennials, not trying to sound like the old man on the porch here, but with the the current generation, they go after every single little detail, every little minuscule detail, and pick apart the logic of it. Right. And yeah. it's like if you're going to do that, then no film is going to stand up the screw no no nothing you know and uh, and a lot of the 80s it's it's all forgettable i mean a lot of the 80s you went to the theater and to hell with logic i saw films like the wraith with charlie sheen really really stupid (laughs) dumb dumb films like the 80s was that's all the 80s was was dumb films you know and you went in you bought a box of popcorn you sat down and just said thrill me that was spectacle spectacle and that's what this film does really well it's all about style and spectacle but like you say like if you try to take it all out of context like you're saying bernie it won't stick but put together it's kind of kind of like one of elvis's fried uh banana bacon sandwiches you know, <laughs> you, know you, you kind of take them up take it apart and it's like banana bacon no that ain't gonna work and then you you know then you take a bite and you go damn that ain't bad man like it works i was gonna say there's just moments of kind of sheer genius it's like, just like little, and it's the tiny little things, you know. It's like that that hair choreography scene, you know, the her sort of stance for the for the first song and for the ending song, you know, with the right. legs akimbo, like she's doing some sort of like vaginal breathing in order to <laughs> right, right, right. kind of be able to get get those notes. I mean, right. you know, it, it's kind of like the the subtleties 
Yeah, oh, yeah. McCoy, just her hair should have its own credit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when she puts the hat on and it's all out and then it's down and it's like, what's right. going on with that? I mean, you know, there are just these brilliant moments. Reva with that kind of nostril acting when yeah. Ellen is kind of kidnapped by the gang. Hello? That's just, yeah. oh my gosh, method acting. Oh, I yeah. love it. You've got Raven when he's looking at Ellen and he's, he's you know, come in and he's going to take her. And that, those kind of eye things going on and that intensity in that, that just, there is genius in this film. There's a lot of wood, but there's no. a lot of genius. You're, uh, you're, I know for a fact your favourite thing about this film, Lily, and it's, do you want to tell them what it is? Oh, well, it's that wet look wader. <laughs> it, it, when he's in his clubhouse, he's got his, this is, uh, you know, Raven in his, yeah. you know, up, up to the kind of nipple area, kind of wet lip wader. I mean, that is just... <sighs> well, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but Willem Dafoe actually did a film earlier with Catherine Bigelow called The Loveless. You ever heard of this? Yes, yeah, it's a great film, yeah. Yeah, and, and he plays like a, like a Tom Finland kind of leather Absolutely, boy, yeah, yeah. And you can see where I could I can imagine Walter Hill look back at that and went shit yeah that's what I want that's what yeah. I want for the heavy you know I want <laughs> I want you know, I want him to be because you know what I mean in that clubhouse I expected to see Al Pacino come strut now totally. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm looking around going, where's all the handkerchiefs sticking out of the back jeans? You know, like, <laughs> Tonight it's is what rich. it means to be hung. Yeah. <laughs> I've totally got written down in my notes, nasty wild one bikers dash Tom of Finland. Pay him. Yeah, pay me. I'm not going to pay this jerk. Listen, shithead, you give him some of your money or I'll give him some of your money. And you know, this is going to sound really warped, okay? And I, I maybe I shouldn't say this, but at one point I had to laugh because I'm watching Ellen Aim up there singing, and I thought, what if they actually exchanged her for like Justin Bieber? <laughs> 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 you know, Willem Dafoe comes in and kidnaps Bieber, and he's just like, oh, "You're coming with the Bieber. <laughs> You're coming with me, boy." <laughs> Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. Not, I don't think this is quite as good as Justin Bieber, but doing my best Gilbert Gottfried voice. Now, I heard that for the, for the Diane Lane part, it was originally considered for Paul McCartney. Can you imagine Michael Perret being called in to rescue Paul McCartney and Willem Dafoe saying, I'll let you go in a couple of weeks to Mecca? Or that'd be okay, but, you know, just if, if me, me and the guys, you know, we, we just got a couple of songs that we want to do. <laughs> I've just been a bit sick in my mouth. Oh. <laughs> and, then, and then all of a sudden, it's like, you know, Michael Michael Perret rescues McCartney, and then he says, are you okay? And he says, well, now I'm not half the man I used to be. <laughs> <laughs> but the story is that McCartney turned it down to do probably the greatest film since Magical Mystery Tour, Give My Regards to Broad Street. Tom Cody was going to be played by... Patrick Swayze. Oh, God. No. He, he, he was, like, interviewed wasn't he but it was Tom Cruise that they offered it to and he right. had a different he'd already taken up a different role oh it would have been Top Gun or something wouldn't it yeah, yeah. Tom Cruise rescuing Macca <laughs> and McCoy was going to be a, an overweight kind of alcoholic ex-military Amy had I think she'd gone into casting as, as Reva wouldn't yeah. she yeah she was yeah. supposed to play the sister right but yeah. I mean I couldn't see Cruz you know I mean like there's got to be something about you know safety safety rules on the set about giving handguns to kids man because I mean <laughs> 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 you know he's not 
not even as tall as a shotgun for shit's sakes. You know, <laughs> you see, Tom Cruise would be like, you know, like a little kid waving around a shotgun. <laughs> well, William Defoe's actually pretty short, isn't he? So, and Tom Cruise oh, yeah. would probably come up to his chest. So that well, would have been. Imagine, uh, can you imagine two little kids swinging around like uh, sledgehammers? <laughs> that would have been something, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh yeah. Going back to something that you said, Lily, Diane Lane, the way that she's, you know, gyrating on stage and she just the way she holds her body and that. And then there's other scenes in the film. This time watching it again, I had a feeling almost like some of this almost seemed to me like anime. Ah, yeah, I can see what you mean. Yeah. And uh, and the way that some of the emotions are over over kind of uh, exaggerated, especially Mm. Willem Dafoe when Cody drops the hammer and he's like, "Ah," you know, he he goes right out of right. You know, that almost seems like anime, like something out of Akira or something like uh, Mm. or or like like, Cowboy um, Bebop, you know. Oh yeah, I was going to say Cowboy Bebop is apparently very very heavily influenced by this some of this though it, it just seems almost like the way it's framed and the way some of it's actually shot like uh seems to me like almost like anime kind of makes sense coming from water hill because obviously the warriors has got right. that kind of comic book vibe and i think he i'm sure i read somewhere that he said that it was kind of a mashup of comic books and pulp fiction and right these kind right. of things you know I see the Warriors and Streets of Fire as set in the same future or past or whatever you want to call because they're both a mashup of the 80s and 50s films. That's the universe they've created. I see them both as part of the same universe or part of the same series of films. To go even further to what you're saying, Morris, there's even almost duplicate scenes in both films, right? Where there's a scene... And the Warriors, where they're all sitting on the train coming home. And then in Streets of Fire, they're all sitting on the train. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then with the Warriors, at the end, when they come back to that ultimate fight at the end, where they've got to deal with that showdown, and then Streets of Fire, it's the same thing. Yeah, hey, if it ain't bright. There's, no, there's parallels. There's a lot of parallels. We already covered American Pop, and when I watched the beginning of this film with the first song, it reminds me of American Pop. I just get that animation kind of sensibility from it, you know? Sure, I can see that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, Morris, you say it's set in the same kind of future or past or whatever, because there's there's a couple of little things in this, which even though they're not overt, they give it almost a kind of sci-fi feel. The fact that the uh, it's kind of this big nameless city, which is looking pretty dystopian and messed up. There's lots of boarded up kind of shop fronts and things like that, which gives it almost a sort of post-apocalyptic look. Mm. And the fact that Amy Madigan character says, uh, oh, I'm just passing through this district kind of that sounds a bit sci-fi to me if that makes sense yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So when she says there's always a war, there's yeah, always a yeah, war. Yeah, totally, war. yeah. And visually as well, it's got, uh, um, again, being a comic book nerd, but a lot of comic books in the 80s, a lot of independent publishers were doing stuff which had this kind of retro 50s-ish, but well, sort of grimy sort of science fiction sort of vibe, stuff like Howard Shakin's American Flag. Now Flat, that you mention it, like that. Bernie, Jeff Darrow. Jeff Darrow, totally. Yeah. You can see that. So, And yeah. it's definitely got that kind of feel to it. Uh-huh. I, I think you could read it as uh, some kind of weird science fiction or that there is a weird science fiction element to it as well. There's the precedent for this sort of thing is set to me from an episode of original Star Trek. There was an episode called The Piece of the Action where Kirk and Spock go down to a planet that's based itself completely around Chicago of the 1920s. So it looks like oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, everyone's, yeah. everyone's going around dressed like gangsters of the 1920s and behaving like that. And this is almost like a planet that's in a 1980s bubble, but they've gone 
and set themselves by the law of the book that says thou shalt behave like 1950s gangs. It's still yeah, set right. in that dystopian future, as you say, you know, something of a Mad Max nature, but it's dystopian for this gang they're living on the other side of town there's only two police in the whole of town who are, yeah. who are completely <laughs> defenseless to do anything yeah. well, and one of them's got a very odd walking stance <laughs> maybe it's an injury or something what the heck is that but yep. that, I mean another awesome just bit of genius I don't know if that's his real walking stance one... if that's put on but it's, it's kind of that cat. he's just got off his horse yeah <laughs> the technology of this time, though. They can't build cars or motorcycles worth the shit, man, because everything blows up. Oh, totally, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you can shoot an elastic band at a motorcycle and blows up. Yeah. Isn't that a Walter Hill thing? Because if you remember that scene in The Warriors, Michael Peck right. has a Molotov cocktail on him. He throws it at the car to ward off that gang, the orphans. And in yeah. one second, boom, the car explodes. That so that thing goes up, yeah. Right. Walter Hill doesn't seem to understand anything about cars or physics, it seems to me. You know, so I think by the 80s, at least it was getting slightly more realistic. <laughs> I listened to an interview with Michael Paré, and I think from what he was saying, his perspective, I think Walter Hill actually didn't have a lot of love for the guy <laughs> because he was talking about the scene where where they're in the, the battery yeah they're in the battery and they had that gas tank I mean the, the gas hole or whatever that pillar yeah 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 oh yeah, yeah like smashing that yeah yeah and he shoots it and then it all goes up in flames you know so they can get away well, apparently when they were shooting all that, everyone was behind protective glass. The cameras were all covered. Like, everything was all covered. And, and the Walter Hills telling them, like, go out there and just stand out there and shoot. When we say action, <laughs> you'll be and fine. Like, and you'll be fine. Yeah, right. He's like, everybody else is behind the barrier. It's like, oh, you got to oh, stand yeah, yeah. in front of the camera. You know, you got to be in front of the camera, so you got to be out there. Get out there, boy. You'll be fine, kid. Come on. This that, Hollywood. That, you know? that probably explains why when he's kind of smashing those two things, Things. He's kind of doing it in quite an ineffectual sort of lackluster way. Right. Idiot that's going to be in front of the plexiglass. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then he was talking also about there's a scene when he stops the bus, the, the Sorrell's bus. Oh, that would have just totally ran him over, oh, wouldn't it? Right. And that's that's a real out. Superman moment, isn't it? Yeah, you know, he that's... puts his hand out to stop yeah. the bus. And he said, that bus, they hit the brakes, and right where his hand came, he said he could feel the bus push his hand. And yeah. he said he would have got mowed right down. At this point, I, I think I'd like to take us to a quick break. Uh, I did an interview yesterday with the great Steve Berlin, currently of Los Lobos. In fact, he's the new boy on the block, having been with the group for a mere 33 years. But at the time of the making of Streets of Fire, he was a member of the Blasters, which is the house band in the bar, in the battery, that we see and you catch like a very brief glimpse of Steve playing with the band so I decided I'd contact him because I've had him a couple of times on the Love That Album podcast and see if I could jog his memory about being filmed with the Blasters in that scene of Streets of Fire so you know get a little bit of an inside perspective so we'll go to our interview with Steve Berlin and then we'll be back in a few minutes to uh, continue our chat about the film you're listening to See You <laughs>
welcome back to see here episode 46 on the other end of a phone call connection i have steve berlin ex-blaster current los lobos member who was performing with the blasters during a very crucial scene in streets of fire good afternoon to you steve howdy the first question i have for you is how did the blasters end up being invited to work in the film streets of fire were you invited by walter hill or was it by rai Kuda, who was a musical yeah, director it's, it's, no it was uh, it was kind of a that's a funny story um walter hill actually wanted the blasters to be in 48 hours huh. and uh in typical blaster fashion of the moment they uh, i never actually saw it but uh, phil one of the two brothers that were the leaders of the band read the script and he thought it was racist. So he told Walter Hill that they weren't going to be part of it, which kind of starring Eddie Murphy could be racist, but Phil <laughs> somehow or another thought that, that the script was racist. So to his credit, Walter Hill didn't give up. And I believe Streets of Fire was his next movie. And I think uh, even though he didn't do anything wrong, he actually wrote a specific scene for us to be in, in that movie, which I have not seen in 30 years. So I did a lot of it kind of is lost to the mists of my, of my memory, but uh, I just remembered him, you know, like like we couldn't end in 48 hours is like the biggest movie ever at the moment. We're like, you know, nice move, Phil. <laughs> so, uh, so we found ourselves in Streets of Fire and it was, uh, uh, it was certainly not the same movie. Uh, Michael Perre is uh, probably one of the worst actors in the history of uh, acting, I would say, roughly. Um, but uh, it was fun. You know, this, the, I remember the, you know, it was a full Hollywood production and I, at that point in my life, I had been, uh, oh, well, you know, if you want to call me back, I was in The Rose. I'll talk about that. I was also in the house band in The Rose. Oh, so wow. I did not other, know that. Yeah. That was pre-Blasters, pre-Lobos, a long, long time ago. So that was my only other experience. I have to say they treated us with enormous respect. You know, it was, uh, took about, I think, all of a day. We were there, you know, various shots, you know, doing stuff. But I don't believe anybody had a speaking line. We were just playing, uh, I believe it was One Bad Stud as Michael Perret very self-consciously wandered around the, the outskirts of the set. You also had another song in there, uh, Blue Shadows? Right, yeah, Blue Shadows. I don't believe I was playing on that one. I, so I think my job was done when uh, One Bad Stud was over. Okay. I was going to act, so you've already gone and answered that this took like a day to shoot. Like, like 7 to midnight, 7 a.m., like, like all day. Yep. I just remember you know, them shooting it over and over and over and over and over again. So it was a lot of get started, hang on, wait, stop again, get started, no, wait, stop oh, again. Oh, God, yeah. Like, like every other movie I've ever been part of. Yeah, it's unbelievable how much time gets wasted on a movie set. Was it something that you and the band were playing to you know, the crew and the cast just to keep them entertained for the part? Or was it like, just hang on, do 10 seconds worth, no, stop? No, we would, uh, from service, we played through you know, like a good minute or two if if I remember right, the scene in the movie, he's like walking around this bar and he's trying to find somebody, and then I believe a fight ensues. So there was it wasn't like playing the length of that specific shot. We were there, you know, we were there, you know, playing nonstop pretty much all day. I just remember being exhausted at the end of the day, having done it a million times. Mm. But even then, I could tell that Michael Perry was a terrible actor. So. <laughs> I imagine, I imagine that's going to be part of our conversation. As, as stiff as a board, it just is amazing to me. Like somebody thought he was star material. Wow. So I, I take it because of all the stop start and how it would have been edited later that the band was miming to the music rather than playing live to set? Yes, we, uh, yeah, we, we couldn't. You know, that's not how it works. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they have to have uh, specific specificity as far as, uh, you know, like exactly where 
stuff happens, you know, scenes are cut effectively to the music, more or less. So, yeah, no, we were playing to a track, but we were playing. I mean, it wasn't, you know, we, we were hitting and I was flowing and it was, uh, you know, it was it was real. It wasn't fake. I think about two, three years later with the French film Round Midnight, I know that the director, whose name is escaping me for a second, did decide to play live to set and he had people like, you know, John McLaughlin and Herbie Hancock and Dexter Gordon. He decided consciously yeah. that that's what he was going to do for that film. So that was a bit of a revolution in that regard. Well, that's, I'd have, that sounds like a pretty good day to me. Yeah. Imagine having those guys play to you all day long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Did you or, or the Alvins or anyone else in the band get a chance to actually look at the script before you actually agreed this time i mean so obviously you know you're saying dave had a problem with 48 hours but did he vet this before deciding yeah, we'll take actually, part? Dave oh, was, what, they, everybody else was into it yeah phil they, you know we were all like just like jesus Phil, I mean, come on man. but uh i don't think so i i don't i didn't i know that so um i never got to see it mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. What was the consensus amongst the band about the film after it had been finished? Did you, um, I mean, and apart well, from I Michael Perret's acting? Uh, I think we, because we were also, um, you know, kind of sh uh, sheepish about having turned down 48 hours, we didn't really care what was in this script. I mean, we were going to do it regardless. So, you know, it was just sort of like, forget it. Like, you know, what, uh, this could be like a KKK movie. We're going to do it anyway. So, um, was Walter Hill very interactive with the band? Um no, not really. I mean, I think uh, he was a fan. Mm. So my sense was that he was just happy that we were doing it. And um, he was just kind of, kind of letting us do our thing. I don't recall much, if any, direction uh, from him at any point. You know, it was just sort of like, you know, once we got into the, the get-ups and once they had it lit and blocked and all that stuff, they just, uh, you know, we just acted like we were playing. Did it feel constrictive on the set? Because there were obviously so many people there had all the uh, the bikers and and all the cast and crew, you know, a cast of hundreds, at least in what would have been a very small space. Not really. I mean, I think it was just, you know, it was so exciting to be part of it, you know, at, at that point. And certainly I was, what, all of 20, 21, maybe. Wow. So whatever, you know, anything like that, it was certainly not a big deal. I was just, you know, everybody was just so happy and excited to be part of the thing that uh, that was that. I mean, we were just, it was great. And, you know, Diane Lane was a gorgeous woman. That would certainly not unpleasant to be in her presence on any level. <laughs> so that part was neat. But uh, it was, uh, it was uh, you know, in that moment, it felt kind of like, like we were part of something, you know, the, considering we're, you know, the Blesters were not a huge band and it did seem like a rather remarkable opportunity for us. I think everybody at that point was just uh, happy to be part of it. So where was that scene shot? I know that part of it was you know, shot under a tarp somewhere in Chicago or in, uh, in New York, but where, where was mm. that scene shot? Was that in a soundstage that or in a real a, bar? Soundstage, yeah. Soundstage in, in LA. Okay. We didn't have to go very far. Okay. You mentioned that you did get to meet Diane Lane, even though she wasn't working on that part of the film, but did you get to meet anyone else in the cast? Did you get to meet Willem Dafoe? And if so, what was he like? Uh, I did not. Uh, I don't even think we actually met Michael Perret. I mean, I just I wanted to meet Diane Lane because I think she's gorgeous. But uh, <laughs> you know, I think uh, I don't think uh, I don't remember actually, you know, like hanging out with her, really talking. He seemed to be very focused on on his quote unquote craft. So um, <laughs> he did not interact uh, with uh, with us or anybody else for that matter mm. that I could see. I mean, it was from where we were. It was just you know he was just trying to look all hard and stuff. <laughs> So you went and mentioned like a couple of minutes ago that you had spent some time working on other films and you'd been in the house band in uh, presumably in the bar of the Rose. Was it during the uh, Love Me With a Feeling yeah. scene? It was the the scene where the the Rose, the Bette Midler character, goes to a transvestite bar. I think it's uh, right. 
was I think it was a Bob Seger song. I can't remember now. That was a really long time ago. Wow. But I was uh, it was the band that I had moved to Los Angeles from Philadelphia to play with. Somehow or another, we got to get on this scene. And actually, that one I actually not only met, but Bette Miller could not have been nicer to anybody and everybody involved in the crew. I remember I went to get coffee with her, which was kind of awesome. She was an absolute delight to be around. Uh, wow. I seemed to be just very happy. Just she was in very, you know, she she knew that she was really good. I mean, it was, you know, she knew that she had the, the part nailed. So that that was kind of different in my experience. And then the the two Robert Rodriguez, well, three Robert Rodriguez movies uh, that right. we did. Um, are we in those? I don't, you know, at that point, honestly, and even La Bamba, like I, I had so little patience for sitting around all day and I was busy doing other stuff. And I kind of, I, honestly, La Bamba, I just gave up. I mean, but we were there for like 17, 18 hours and I was like that, that or not even, but probably like 10 hours. I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to go. <laughs> something else. I hadn't watched La Bamba in about 30 years or something like that. I went and tracked down a copy so I could just see if I could spot you because uh, uh, Lobos are playing in the brothel scene. But yeah, it, it didn't I'm look like... No, I you, no, I didn't see that. But I did watch like the film clip of La Bamba where it looks like the band's playing in, in a county fair and Lou Diamond Phillips comes up to you know, yeah. uh, play guitar and sing yeah, with you guys that were playing percussion. I'm barely in that one as well. Yeah, I don't... I, I have a face made for radio, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Did you ever have an ambition? Would you have ever thought that you know doing more film work would have been nice? I'm sure it would be nice, but I, you know, oh. it's, I don't know. It's not. It was certainly never ever one of my aspirations. I'm perfectly happy with life in music, and uh, I don't know my friends who are actors. Not many of them are very happy people. Mm. You know, it seems something about the nature of the work makes people insecure. I would say. How about MD work, like you know, doing what So Raikuda did for uh, Streets of Fire? Have you ever had any offers to do that? Uh, no, I would. I'd love to. That would be a blast. But uh, no, we've just you know we've, we've scored a few movies over the years. But uh, the you know the Streets of Fire, The Rose. Are we in Desperado? I swear to you, I cannot remember for life if we're in the Robert Rodriguez. The opening scene of Desperado, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I do remember that it's that pre-credit sequence where... Uh, Banderas. Antonio Banderas. Uh, and the opening moment where Antonio Banderas is playing his guitar and singing and walking along the bar, and the band are definitely playing with him and walking across a bar. I certainly remember Cizzo's face. <laughs> and, uh, uh, could be. That wouldn't surprise me, but I don't think the rest of us were in it. I mean, he he kind of looks like he'd fit in one of those scenes. I don't think the rest of us. Mm. And it would, it would be obviously like kind of a misplaced cameo, sure. in my opinion. But yeah. <laughs> what do I know? Uh, so I guess while I still have you on the phone, I've got to ask, what's happening in the world of Los Lobos at the moment? Are you recording a new album? Uh, no, no, we're just we're off for like another week or so, and then we'll pretty much be playing the entire month of. Uh, December. We we have a number of like extended runs. We're like every year in December we four nights in Chicago, four nights in New York. This year we'll do a night in Boston. Where am I forget? There's a couple more. Uh, we're doing the Fillmore. We have the one of the longest running every year engagements at the Fillmore West in in, in San Francisco. So it's kind of like it's it's nice. You know, December is kind of taken care of gig wise. You know, just all these uh, oh Washington D.C. two nights in Washington D.C. So. We've been doing that for a number of years now, so no recording plans beyond a very vague discussion about you know what the next record might be. But I wouldn't, I don't anticipate actually doing anything for at least. Oh, well, we're kind of tied up through March at least, so maybe 
late in the spring we'll start discussing it or at least getting past the talking about it stage look forward to hearing about that when the time comes and fingers crossed that you make it back to these shores again it's been, oh, been a while i would love to it's been too long i, I think about it a lot I, I would love to come back so Hopefully we can make that happen sometime. That'd be magnificent. And uh, I will take you up on your offer because I think it's inevitable that we'll be discussing the Rose on the Sea Here podcast <laughs> at some stage, maybe sometime right. in 2018. So I'll get you back. So thanks so much once again, Steve, for uh, talking to us on Sea Here about your uh, recollections of Streets of Fire. My we'll pleasure, be, man. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Sea Here episode 46. We're back. What we're going to do at this time is talk about the cast. So, uh, Bernie, do you have any thoughts about uh, the strength or otherwise of the main cast members? Well, I think one of the main problems of the film is the uh, the two main cast members, Michael Pere, who kind of gives Wood a bad name, really. <laughs> um it, 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 he's odd because it, if you kind of close your eyes and just listen to his delivery of the lines, he's not too bad. He's pretty good. But if you're actually <laughs> if you're watching him deliver the lines, he's just he can't emote. And it's almost like he's, he's not able to, you know, physically convey what he's saying. I don't know if you guys feel the same way. Well, as Steve Berlin went and put in his interview, he said, Michael Pere is the worst actor on the face of the planet. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about how you can't really tell what the time period is and going back to the 50s or anything, right? I look at him almost like one of those uh, actors, like they were in those really tacky 50s sci-fi B-movies, you know? Sure. It's like, he was like one of those, what do you mean, professor? That you <laughs> I don't even oh, think he was awesome. that good. I think you're, uh, you're insulting John Agar by saying that, Tim. Okay, okay. Yeah. But, I'm, but you get what I'm saying. Right? Sure, I mean, yeah, to me, yeah. To me, it was that stilted 50s acting that went along with the whole 50s backdrop. That's, that's what I kind of got out of it. I sort yeah. of got the impression impression though that if Michael Pere had been around on an Ed Wood film, Ed Wood would have said, who got me this piece of shit? Get me a real yeah. actor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's been a long geez. time since I've seen Eddie and the Cruises, which was not a film I liked. And I've got to say, uh, give my cards away, I've not said it yet, I liked Streets of Fire a hell of a lot because I liked the universe that it created, but I did not sure. like Eddie and the Cruises. So what do you gentlemen and lady remember about Michael Perret's performance in Eddie and the Cruises? Because I've done a complete blank. There's so. a funny thing about Eddie and the Cruisers that will send you probably into an epileptic shock, Morris, but while I was listening to the same Michael Perret interview, he was saying that, you know, they did the sequel to Eddie and the Cruisers up in Canada and that they're actually now in negotiation and talk with the script to do a third Eddie and the Cruiser film. Just what we've been waiting yeah. for. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Michael Pere is Cruiser. back. You know, yep, Michael Pere is back. Eddie and the Cruisers 3, Cruise Harder. <laughs> <laughs> Special guest appearance by Pacino. Yeah. Cruisers cruising, cruising with the Cruisers. <laughs> no, I mean, like, Michael Pere for a long time, you know, he... He was that face. I mean, he had that 50s Steve McQueen look to him. From a physical point of view, you can see why yeah. you know, they kind of took chance and yeah. cast him. But, but he just but he I remember, chops towards him. I remember him in like films like The Philadelphia Experiment. And I remember uh, 
He was in a number of films in the 80s, but then he just basically dropped off. He's got a lot of credits on IMDb. I think he's got close to uh, like 150 credits, something like that. Yeah, I was going to say that the last thing I saw Michael Pere in was actually Postal. Was, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The guy who made The Name of the King, uh, all those uh, the really bad German director. Oh, what was his name? The boxing guy. Uwe Boll. Uwe Boll. Uwe Boll, yeah, that's yeah, it. Uwe yeah. Boll. Yeah, Postal with Uwe Boll's film. That was the last time I I saw Michael Perret. He's got 136 credits, and his latest film in post-production is uh, Puppet Master The Littlest Reich. So, um, there you go, that says it all. So, I will say one thing in Michael Perret's defence, and that is, as long as he's not required to recite a line, he actually works as an action hero, I think, in this film. Absolutely, physically. There was that scene early on in the film where he's in his sister's diner, and that gang who comes in for the one scene comes in to start some trouble, and he just slaps the leader into the future and then throws him through the window, and he handles that moment really, really well. Try it again, punk. Very action hero and very comedic in a way. Uh, so as long as he's not required yeah. to open his mouth, he actually does do a good job, I think. But Yeah, I mean, that whole kind of switchblade, giving it back, swi- you know, slapping, taking it, yeah. slapping, you know, that's just brilliant action acting. It is. So, Bernie, who was the other actor that you thought didn't cut the mustard? Uh, I think uh, Diane Lane is pretty poor in this, I've got to say. She's not a bad actress by any stretch of the imagination. It's almost like she's not present. She's kind of sleepwalking through this. She's very sort of ambivalent. There's no real... I don't know if this is a problem with the writing more than it is her. I think it's a um, problem with the writing. I think her character's very... She's just not given anything yeah, to do. Yeah, We covered the stains, and she's really good in the stains. She's fantastic in that, yeah. Right. Yeah. Got to or think what, what she had to act against. Yeah. Because you know, <laughs> I think you said that, she, um, Morris, she's 19. I thought she was, like, by, by 18, so 18, 19. Mm. Yeah, oh. so she's a, you know, really young woman, just... Uh, and then she's kind of acting against a plank. Yeah. Um, well, what's, re- what's really weird was she was, she was 19, Perret was 24 and Willem Dafoe was 30. Why? She should have gone Willem Dafoe. There's no chemistry between her and uh, Perret at all, is there? No. And then you've got also then you've got her with really poorly cast uh, Billy Fish Rick Moranis as, uh, you know, the guy that she moved in with. I mean, really? I would. um, I I disagree with that. I think Rick Moranis is excellent in this. I think he's one of the stronger actors, stronger roles in it. I think he's brilliant, but not in the role that he's in, in terms of being in a relationship with, with Ellen Ayne. That's not at all believable. If he was just the kind of, you know, manager, that would work. No. Yeah, relationship of convenience. I mean, It's that's... just illustrating the point that she's willing to do whatever she needs to to right. get where she needs to go. But as other than that, the character isn't written well enough for her to even sort of, you it know... It doesn't convey that. Yeah. yeah. Every comedy film and every other film that Rick Moran was in he always played like a lovable happy-go-lucky guy yeah totally but this was this was the first film you see him in and you know you just want to call him rick moranis because he's an yeah. arsehole <laughs> listen skirt let me make it simple for you take a hike 
every time I see him, I'm just thinking of Seymour Krellborn or Dark Helmet. That's the thing. He's always playing the nebbish. Here he is. He's the nebbish who thinks that he's something more than what he is. Right. But to his credit, one thing I will say about the character that I did like, the nebbish is always the one who, once he tries to rise above his station, is always pushed into a corner and is shown up for being the coward that he is. It didn't matter. He didn't care who it was. It didn't matter if it was someone who he saw beneath him. He saw everyone beneath him. He wasn't afraid of the gangs. He wasn't afraid of sure, yeah. Tom Cody. He always put up a front. He, he, did, he was never yeah. pushed into a corner. I think he was the kind of guy that was just kind of too stupid to know when to shut his mouth. He goes up to uh, Raven at the end. He's like, Hey, get out of my way! What is this? You can't get away with this. You think you could ride into any town and kidnap anybody you want? Now get the hell out of town and leave these people alone. Lee Ving just walks up and just flattens him, you know what I mean? And it's just like, buddy, you, you got to know when to pull back. You know, what I mean? <laughs> he doesn't have that in him, like you're saying. Well, I, you know, I but think he, he's because um, he's used to being an overbearing asshole, and that generally right. gets him results. So right. he'll do that in any situation, even when he's right. going to wind up getting twatted for it. Even the way he criticizes people, he's going on to, with McCoy, and then she's like, you know, yeah, that looks, you know, you look like a real intelligent guy, man. You you look really smart right he's just like shut up butch you couldn't say that stuff today i mean <laughs> nope speaking of uh, mccoy amy madigan i think she's great in this as well my name's mccoy i'm a soldier at least i was up until about a year ago ran out of wars yeah, she's a real light shining through. Uh, again, it's a fairly one-dimensional character, but she's able to do something with it, I think. Right. I love that bit when she flattens Bill Paxton. Yes. Oh, yeah, the sucker face. She just like <laughs> hops over to gives a bottle to Cody, and then Cody just walks away. That's right. They just stroll <laughs> off, yeah. They're happy. Yeah, but now I don't like your face. You know, everywhere I go, there's always an asshole. This sort of Tom to McCoy, they kind of want a quick tumble after that. It is uh, just <laughs> like such a great line. <laughs> I think it, it's sort of in, she implies as well that, uh, or it's implied that Amy might be a lesbian, I think. I don't know, she might like ladies. Yeah, yeah, you're not my type, kind yeah. of, a couple of times. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I think that you know, Walter Hill, or maybe it was through studio interference, probably drop the ball on that because you know on the one hand yeah you're not my type is implying that she's a yeah. lesbian character but they possibly lost their nerve and said oh, oh yeah look i had a relationship with some guy and it didn't work out or something like that so in the the 80s they weren't quite ready to have that character they did a little bit but then they reserved something they pulled themselves back I think really hoping right. she was going to hook up with reva you know in 2017 she would have yeah that had to be in the romance we needed to see on that <laughs> and yet there is something that I think the film was possibly ahead of its time, but I want to get your opinion. I went and watched the film for a second time with my daughter, Amelia, and she's mid-teens and really hasn't watched much of this sort of film before, but she really, really dug it. But there was that moment where Rick Moranis says to um, Tom Cody, hey, I'm not paying you to drag some skirt around. And Amelia says, hang on, Dad, pause the film. Yes. Is this film sexist or is just that character sexist? <laughs> and I thought it was an interesting question from her perspective, who's not really watched anything in the way of 80s cinema. And mm. I sort of thought, well, look, 
it's a film that's really trying to set up something from a very 50s-like perspective. So it's consistent with that. But the fact that Walter Hill went and put Amy Madigan in a really tough role, and really when you consider that she's done all the hard work when they get to the battery long before Tom Cody does. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was maybe ahead of its time in the 80s. But I don't know, where do you guys see that? Are there many other roles that you yeah, can Yeah, I mean, she's the period? one that's facing off against Raven. He's going and rescuing the chick and doing the light right. lifting. And she's there kind of you know, holding a gun on Raven and his entire crew whilst they're kind of, you know, playing their card game. She's the one doing then, all the uh, work. And then he gives her shit afterwards. Yeah. She's like, hey, I did good back there. You know, I did all the shit. And he's just yeah. like, yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah. You know, like yeah. he's sitting there ragging her out. But, but it's got that sort of two, the, the two things going on because you've got, you know, very early on when the, the biker gang comes into the, the town, you've got the cop in the car going, guard down, son of a bitches, you know, that casual sexism line. But then you've also got Reva when she's talking to her brother about, you know, men. I bring one in every now and then, but nothing steady. You know, so she's kind of showing a, a sort of strong female lead in that, you know, men are something that she brings in on our casual, quite a male kind of so there is that real sense of playing with male-female stereotypes going on as well. The scene to me where Cody finally gets paid and he says, okay, here's $1,000 I promised McCoy and the rest, forget it. This is the grand I promised McCoy. You can keep the rest. And he's yeah. walking out and all of a sudden Ellen's just like, Tom, Tom, wait! You know, and she's running after him and it's like next thing you know they're in the sack and it's like, oh, shit. Still covered in rain? You know, they're <laughs> post-coitus and they've still got the raindrops on them? Or, you know, yeah. or is that now meant to be the sweat? Yeah. Well, it is an 80s <laughs> film after all. As sort of progressive as the McCoy character is, Amy Madigan's character, again, talking about Diane Lane, her character, Ellen, is actually kind of quite ineffectual and Ooh, save me. Do you know what I mean? So she's kind of fulfilling that sort of stereotype in a way. Well, and then you've got that kind of, is it baby girl that comes in towards the end? Oh, E.G. Yeah. E.G. Daly. Yeah. yeah. The actress, E.G. Daly, she could really sing because she was actually a singer in the 80s. I remember her doing pop music. Oh. Like a lighter kind of Debbie Gibson or like Madonna type stuff. Like like I remember her on the radio. Yeah, she's and I she's got a real kind of, um, kind of country feel to her as well. I could really see her doing kind of, you know, Dolly Parton style, green grass kind of stuff. Remember when you didn't love me? Now all the time you're thinking of me. This is my countdown to love. Oh, this is my countdown to love. You are the one love in my life. I know you feel that way too. Oh, what a thrill when I'm holding you near. All of my wildest come true. One character we didn't get to, Mr. Raven Shaddix. Yet we do need to talk about Willem Dafoe. 
he's uh, he's probably the the best thing about uh, from a, a cast acting point of view he's he's the best thing about this movie he's just flawless in this i think from his weird kind of inverted butt cut hair to his uh, <laughs> he's a duck bum yeah i suppose it is but it's kind yeah, of the, the da bits it. on top of his head not at the back right really weird and yeah his as you mentioned before lily is leather waders and um oh. It's kind of pale skin, oh. full lips, and piercing <laughs> eyes. He's, uh, he's just amazing. He's and that bit when, you know, at the end, he's coming out of the flames in his waders and looks like I finally ran into someone who likes to play as rough as I yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. Well, looks like I finally ran into someone that likes to play as rough as I do. Yeah, this must be a lucky night. I'm lucky. I guess maybe I am. You're dumb. Real dumb. I'll be coming for her and I'll be coming for you too. And it's like at that point, I'm so rooting for Raven. (laughs) Don't you think though that that scene where they kind of have that little exchange, don't you think if you were Tom Cody, you would have just shot him and then you would there would be nothing else to do. Exactly. (laughs) The end. I read somewhere that at the end when they're having their big fight, Cody was supposed to stab Raven. Yeah. He was was supposed to have a knife and he was supposed to have have gutted him. But they wanted to keep it a PG rating so they didn't do it. Because I just think it's so ridiculous where he's standing there and he's just panting, panting, panting. Yeah, yeah. And he walks over and pushes him down. Kind of apt. You've got those two big macho guys swinging their hammers at each other. Right. <laughs> and it's that final bit where he kind of pushes him, but he pushes him onto the sledgehammer. You know, I'm there going, pick it up. Pick up that sledgehammer. You know, he's turned his back on you. Get the fucker. You know? <laughs> and I, I'm still, I'm still kind of, I'm really sad. Still rooting for, for Raven just to, you know, do something despicable and really take it into the next level. But then, right. he, you know, his his kind of broken body is is put on the back of the kind of motorcycle trike at that at the end. Right. And his lone cycle you've just got a couple of second glimpse of it just being left on right. the street it was almost like they were doing the crow years before the crow the style and everything with his pvc you know that the sure, rubber yeah you know, it, yeah. It, it just to me totally reminded me of almost like i said like the crow or something like that like in the 90s right but the general look and tone of streets of fire is responsible for early 90s scoffs and things like that he, he had stood. like the long leather coat and stuff didn't he so right, yeah, yeah. right yeah. yeah yeah like he, he totally stood out like I'm, when i saw this back in the 80s when it was on cable tv i mean i thought diane lane was cute but i mean i really didn't need to see her in anything else and you know, michael I could have taken him or leave him. But Willem Dafoe was the one guy, though, that I thought, man, I want to see this guy do something else. Yeah, absolutely. And then I remember seeing him do a film with Gregory Hines about Vietnam that was a couple of years later. And it was like a murder mystery. And then then there was a number of things I had seen him do up to the point of uh, Last Temptation of Christ, Mm. which was, uh, I think, the film that really put him up and over the map. Was that that before or after Mississippi as well, wasn't it? Oh, actually, I think it was after Mississippi Burning. That was another one I completely forgot. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that was the one, too. That really put him up there. Out of all the people in this film, he's the one guy where you're like, this is talent. This is a guy I want to see. And you know what he did his next film after this was to live and no. die in L.A. That's wow. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he could have even gone bigger. You know, if I'm thinking that bit where they're waiting under the bridge and they're about to go into to the bomber's lair, you've got the procession of the bomber's bikes going by. That really reminded me of the Duke's procession. You know, I could have seen kind of Raven out in the middle of that with chandeliers attached to his <laughs> motorbike. 
you know, escape yeah, yeah. from New York style, sure. <laughs> kind of going. In. You know, Big there was. <laughs> I just love that, and I was. I think he could have gone even bigger. He's got all that range of, available. If there were the, the sequels that were planned, his character needed to come back, kind of bigger and better and fighting back. Oh, and I'm, I'm sure he would have done. Cody needed to be yeah. kind of, you know. Well, Bernie, have you ever seen uh, the anime of Fist of the North Star? Do you know? I haven't. I, obviously, I know it, but I've never seen it. Okay, he reminds me of one of the baddies in Fist of the oh, North okay. Star with all the facial expressions. Sure. And yeah. It's totally like Japanese anime. Like just yeah, the way yeah. his eyes bug out and his just yeah yeah yeah. And he can just do it with his face. No CGI needed here. Right. I always thought he looked a bit like uh, Steve Buscemi. The two of them, they'd be believers, brothers. <gasps> oh, that's another heartthrob well, of mine. You know, and initially when he was playing the Green Goblin in Spider-Man, they really wanted to just have his face. Mm. Yeah, they could have done it as well. They could have yeah. done it. They really could have done it. But they, you know, but he had that mechanical suit on, like where they covered his face and made him look like Iron Man. No, they really could have done it with his face. We had a thousand dollars in that bus. I lost my clothes. The luggage is gone. All the sheep music is gone. This is great. We're on our way to the rich. No bus. No nothing. You shouldn't have stopped burn. I want. Can we talk for a few minutes about the music? Because we are a music film podcast for the first time. <laughs> Wait, so, what? So we've already gone and spoken a little bit about the peripherals, like you know Paul McCartney supposedly being the singer, and a little bit about Ry Cooter's music, but the songs are the thing in this film. And we've already gone and mentioned, you know, Jim Steinman was the one who wrote the bookended songs of this film, and. To let my cards out here, I don't know where all of you guys stand, but I hate Jim Steinman, I hate Meatloaf. Don't God, I'm so glad you said that, Morris, because I'm the same. I can't stand that shit. So. <laughs> oh my God, no. But it seems, in a way, that this music was probably appropriate for the start and the end of the film. But it seems as well that they align the music with the era. So, as we said, there's a 50s film caught in the middle of an 80s film here. They've gone and aligned the 80s music of Jim Steinman with the good people. And you've got the 50s, the badass rock and roll of Blasters in the middle of the film as the music that's the choice music of Raven Shattuck's motorcycle gang. So the implication, yep, modern, good, old, bad. I know I'm probably reading too much into this, but I certainly preferred listening to the Blasters over Ellen Aim and the Attackers. Absolutely. Because, as I mentioned earlier, Jim Steinman's got such a kind of distinctive sound that it, it kind of, I don't think it sits well in the film. It kind of pulls you out because it's so, as you're saying, it's so very much kind of 80s. And the rest of the look and feel and sound of the film doesn't do that. Mm. And also as well, you know, in 1984, if you were a young person and you were into rock and roll, would you be listening to Meatloaf or Jim Steinman? Well, you'd be listening to Pat Benatar, and this isn't necessarily a long way off from what she was doing. And no, maybe, that's true. Maybe, yeah, if, maybe Pat yeah. Benet- if Pat Benatar had shown some interest, I, I, I'm not quite sure if she was already mega huge, I can't remember, but oh, yeah, it's, it's, fe- it's feasible that they could have had her for the Diane Lane role. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you guys remember uh, Love is a Battlefield? Love is a Battlefield, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like all, all of that kind of, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I could totally see that. But the, I, I think that going back to what I was saying in the beginning about this being like a stage production, it seems to me the feeling I get from Steinman's music is that he doesn't write for albums, he writes for theater. Absolutely, it seems, yeah. It seems to me that his music is theatrical, like uh, yeah. his music is made for full stage production type sure. of stuff, like Phantom of the Opera 
type stuff, you know? So when you see the beginning of this film, to me, it's almost like watching the beginning of a, of a Broadway musical or something. Right. And that's where you get taken out of it because it's like, no, we're not watching a Broadway musical. It's actually a movie. And then it goes into the movie, right? Beginning of this, I think it really has a feeling like I'm watching like hair or, or something of that ilk, you know, it just, or Jesus Christ, superstar. It's just kind of that big bombastic. Yeah. Uh, everybody, the chorus and the choir in the background and everybody's all into it. And then it just goes right into the film. So well, you've I think got that bit, which is the, the post rescue bit where they're kind of, they're, they've ditched the car and they're walking. And then that's got the, that same kind of musical theater right, slash right. kind of going into the music video bit of her on, you know, through a TV screen. And it's kind of, you're not sure which bit's which. And it's sort of interfacing yeah. between the two. I'm tired I'm thirsty Again, it's got that sort of post-apocalyptic sort of bit of decay around the edges and seems like everyone's right. in the sex trade is, that they're walking <laughs> through the street of. You know, yeah. it's kind yeah. of very interesting. Yeah, it's cutting between that and it's almost like a flashy MTV-style video right. for Ellen yeah. Ames. Yeah. Right, that point there where she's singing Sorcerer with, on the TV, that almost seemed like Total Recall or something. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. And it was just kind of weird like that, like the the fashion designs. And- the film that I would sort of compare this to, not in terms of story by any stretch of the imagination, but as it was a mix-up of 50s styles and what were then contemporary styles, and to my mind worked much better, was Phantom of the Paradise. The songs in that film, sure. written by Paul Williams, are far more memorable. And that mashup of styles, obviously, I guess, Phantom of the Paradise, having a direct precedent of Phantom of the Opera whereas Streets of Fire is not based on any one particular film it's just based on styles of films that you might have seen before. Well, it's very much influenced, I think, by the um, Wikipedia was saying the, the success of Flashdance. You don't really get a, much of a sense of Flashdance, although maybe that's where he got the McCoy Kabir girl. Flashdance connection here, because actually that girl that was up there shaking her ass on the bar was the same girl that was the dance double in Flashdance. That's right. Oh, yeah. gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but you can okay. certainly see it in the actual filmmaking and, and the way it's shot and the way it's lit there's a definite sort of influence there I would say Right. I mean, maybe that was just, you know, that's what 80s cinema of that ilk was looking like at that point. Here's an interesting thing, too. You know, Walter Hill, he had his own distinct style by that time, I think. And that, you know, like you say, like with the 80s, with music video and everything becoming so prolific and everything, like just becoming so predominant. I mean, to say, do directors change their style to suit the aesthetics of the generation? Of the or, time, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like do they, do they change their styles to kind of meet the, the way people interpret film? at that time because I could see this being a, a baby of the 80s totally mm. because you, know, you couldn't make a film like this today no it just would it just wouldn't sit well it didn't really sit then either did it looking back that a lot more back then because sure it was a video generation you know Morris what do you think of um, I think we touched upon it briefly earlier but what what do you think of Ry Kudo's score in this do you think it's one of his better scores I've heard a range of Ry Kudo's scores as 
I've said before, I bowed down at his uh, temple. And Tim, you talk about, you know, do directors adapt to whatever the style is? And I think that films like, you know, Paris, Texas and uh, Southern Comfort and the, the music that he wrote for Streets of Fire and, you know, any other number of films that he's written the score for, he seems to do things that are very distinctively Rai Kuda, and yet he does manage to change it up a little bit. That guitar style mm -hmm. is really incredibly distinctive, but his compositional style does seem to vary from film to film, which shows, in a way, to me, why he was such a great film composer. I mean, we tend to think Rai Kuda as that artist, you know, from the 70s and the artist who's in the 2000s has had this great renaissance. Just a, a fantastic songwriter, fantastic guitarist and singer, and hell, he got the whole Buena Vista Social Club thing going, so he's done a lot of great stuff in his life, but I don't know whether the conversation has been had about what sort of a film composer he was, and in my mind, yes, I think he is a great film composer. That adaptation of uh, uh, Rumble notwithstanding, and that's just more of a mm. performance thing, but as a composer for this film, and how he plays in general, it's it's all great. I really do love him. I do think he is a good screen composer in general. And yes, what he does right for this film completely works for me. I just wanted to bring up one more thing that's not music related. Well, it sort of is music related, but you mentioned before about the visuals of this film and the director of photography was Andrew Leslow. And I mentioned Paul McCartney before. There was another Paul McCartney connection because Andrew Leslow, who did such a fantastic job in the look of the film and in the lighting of the film, it's just a magnificent job. But his connection is that early on, he was the director of photography for the Beatles' Shea Stadium concert film, which if you went to see eight days a week in the cinema, it's unfortunately not on the DVD, he was the man who was a director of photography for that concert. But that concert's huh. available through other means, and that just completely blew my mind. I thought, wow, you know, oh, wow. stuff like that. So, yes, there is yeah. a Paul McCartney slash Beatles connection to oh. this film. So, look, final words. I want to know from you three bad studs what your feelings are. Is this a thumbs up for the one or two people out there who, besides myself, who hadn't seen this film before we decided to talk about it? Would you recommend this? Because we've, I think, apart from Lily, we've all gone and said there are shortcomings to the film, but I will go around the table. So, Lily, you've picked this. You're the guest. Is this a completely recommend 100% unreservedly for you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I see all of its shortcomings and I don't care about them. The wooden acting, the terrible script, the forgettable songs. But you've got Willem Dafoe in wet look, up to your nipples, waders. <laughs> you just can't get off those acting. waders, can you? <laughs> you've got sucker punches. You've got motorbikes going on fire because someone's like shot a cat pistol at them. What is not to love about this film? Go and watch it, people. You've got to see this film. It is amazing. Bernie? Yeah, it's a definite thumbs up from me. The film is more than the sum of its parts. There's things that, as, as we were talking about, they don't work, but individually it's kind of like this big tasty stew of awesomeness really just <laughs> and also it's such a, an amazing exercise in style yep. and it is an absolute style over substance kind of movie but it is pure cinema in that respect as, as tim was saying logic's kind of out the window but that doesn't matter because as a, a cinematic experience works really well it just totally sums up that specific feel of a specific part of the 80s for me being an old fart who actually remembers that period i think it's great i think yeah 
uh, you should watch it. It's awesome. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Lily. To hell with general opinion. I mean, like everyone has those <laughs> films that they love, and I mean, like regardless of, it's like cheese. You know, like some people love their camembert, and some some people like their cheese a little runny and a little pungent. You know, but so what? You know, like it's delicious to one person. That's all they need. You know, but I mean, there's a lot to like in this film, and like I say, it's it's perfect Sunday afternoon fare when you know you're you're just basically laying on the sofa and you don't want to deal with anything too cerebral it's just you run with it really when the whole 80s was like that and i mean a large part of like the late 70s was like that as well i mean like i look at films like flash gordon you know or other films like that they're just completely ludicrous man. You know, <laughs> yeah. like it's, or even so many of our favorite films i mean weird science you know you sit back and look at that film now and you go really like really <laughs> like you still like it though there are things that are dated there are some films that age well and there's some that don't and i think this does i think it, it ages well and i and you know this is a fun one you know regardless with uh, us sitting here picking apart its flaws for the last little while uh, i i still think this is a high recommend i can't remember which one of you went and referred to the podcast how did this get made the whole notion of tearing apart a film like this or in fact any film saying no this is not logical makes no sense to me because if a film director creates a universe and says yes outside the cinema this discussion does not hold weight this situation blowing up motorbikes with one cat pistol does not work but in the universe i've gone and created is completely logical and i've always gone and thought that as long as you keep up that logic throughout the whole film as long as you don't get nervous and decide oh i'm going to make some of it realistic because or you know the critics or the public won't like that but i want to have something of a fantasy if you go all the way and make a, a fantasy and you create those rules you establish those rules at the start of the film then it's completely logical nothing else really matters and i think walter hill has gone and created this universe at the start of the film so i don't see it having logic flaws within its universe yes in this universe completely but that's not the universe that we're watching the film doesn't matter there's only two policemen in town it doesn't matter <laughs> that you can blow up a car with one shot doesn't matter if mythbusters were to take it apart none of that works it's, yeah. it's created these rules and he's stuck to them so for that reason it's all logical as far as just as a watchability film i did find it a lot of fun tim you mentioned flash gordon i enjoy films like flash gordon a lot more i enjoy films like phantom of the paradise more but this still was a joy to me i was late to the party on this one and i know that a lot of people in our film community are huge huge fans i couldn't see myself watching this every year like i know some people would but for the couple of times that I watched for the podcast, I'm really damn glad that I did. And probably a couple of years from now, I'll pull it out again and watch it with Amelia and we'll have a lot of fun with it. And yes, I, I will agree with all of you that uh, Willem Dafoe was definitely the strongest thing about it from an acting perspective. And musically for me, the blasters were the strongest thing about it. You know, I mean, along with Ray Yeah, easily. Also. But I love the blasters, make no secret. And anyone who knows me or has seen any of my posts on the Love That Album page won't be surprised about that. I love that whole sort of rock Billy revival thing. I think the Blasters did it better than Brian Setzer and the Stray Cats did, as much as I enjoy them, but the Blasters always seem more authentic. I mean, hell, they used Lee Allen in the band, and you don't get much more authentic than New Orleans legend like him. So, yeah, but right. anyway, overall, but, yeah, I'd definitely recommend this film too. I was going to say, Maurice, I, I think, so saying you, you won't become an annual watcher. If you were to get yourself a pair of wet look leather <laughs> waders, and uh, watch it in those. Do you think that might sway your judgment about becoming an annual watcher? I'm just a little bit worried that if I got into those overalls, Lily, that you'd be asking me to send you photos. 
Well, I was going to say, we'd need some pictures on Facebook yeah, yeah. or something if that was going no, to happen, definitely, Morris. No, so. PM me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you may have a rough time with this one, and I don't want to hurt your feelings, but uh, you're not my type. Anyway, so Tim, next month, the film is your call. It's mm-hmm. one of two possibilities, so you're now going to tell us which one it is. There's one that we're going to temporarily postpone for a little while and sort it out, but I next month, I think this is what I want to do. is something I've been thinking about for a long time, and it's kind of a cultural phenomena and something that I think a lot of people can relate to in uh, North America. We're going to look at it as a little film called Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a Christmas present for me, Tim. That's fantastic. I see you're familiar, Bernie. <laughs> I should well, uh, Yeah, yeah. Sounds like I'm talk- about to get familiar. I mentioned right. the film to Max, and he said, oh, you're in for a treat, Dad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is something I, I've had on the back burner for us for a long time that I've wanted to uh, to spring at the proper moment. And I thought, you know, this is the time of the year, the gift that keeps on giving. So there you go. <laughs> well, there you go. Next month will be Heavy Metal Parking Lot. And I look forward to watching this and um, having a uh, heavy metal discussion with you. It'll be uh, a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Before we go and give the housekeeping details, I just wanted to say a huge thanks to Lily Sock Monkey. Thank you so much for joining us. I know that... Bernie went and said that it might take a little bit of convincing, and I thought, no, no, I reckon I'll sweet talk her into it. And there you go, you, we've, we've done it. Wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't that difficult, was it? A few messenger messages, and you encouraged me. But thank you very much. I've been made very welcome. Thank you, Morris. Thank you, Tim. And of course, you thank you to the wonderful Bernie for, wow. uh, for having me and, and watching my film. It was great fun. You were the best part of this episode, if you ask me. Oh, yeah. oh thank you, sweetie. Yeah. <laughs> You were the Raven Shaddock of this episode. Not because you're evil. But... So who was the Tom Cody? If that's the... um, Sorry, Bernard, that's you. <laughs> okay. All right. So a few housekeeping details. If uh, you like this podcast, I certainly hope that you do because you've gone through to the end of the episode. And I, so that would seem to indicate that you might not think we suck too much. Then you can join the Facebook group and bring some of your own movie music discussion. Join us at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast. And that's S-W-H-E-A-R podcast. You can write an email to us. I know that some people sort of think that email is a little bit old fashioned, but I'm a big fan of the email. You can write to us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com and come up with some suggestions that we have one more film from this year that we're supposed to review. But as is the lapsadaisical see here fashion, we're going to be a little bit late in completing our quartet of requested films for this year. So our fourth film for the quartet of requests will be taking place in January. But I'll reveal that at the end of December's episode. But uh, we'll be having another very, very special guest joining us, Mr. Mike White of the Projection Booth will be coming in to join us for January's film. It's something that he requested. But uh, in January, I'll be sending out the requests for you listeners out there to put forward your request for what you want us to talk about in 2018. And we'll pick the first four films that you suggest and the rest of the films will be our choices because, damn it, it's our podcast. We should have some choices. But we have some interesting things lined up, some exciting things. I've been in contact with some film directors and musical advisors to films. Some really, really good things to come in 2018. I can assure you of that. I think that's pretty much it. So um, 
that's uh, pretty much covered it. So until December, when we talk about heavy metal parking lot, I just want to ask you all out there to be nice to each other because what the world needs now are leather chaps, leather overalls. So uh, <laughs> thank. And, and but, buttless chaps aren't aren't skinny guys from England. <laughs> so until next month, be nice to each other. Wear leather overalls. Hit each other with sledgehammers, and I'm only talking about the Peter Gabriel variety. We'll see you in December 2017. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.